the idea of again the imposter syndrome creeping in when I started writing the book and trying to forcefully write as beautiful prose as Liz Gilbert and Glennon Doyle and failing and then realizing that I can't carry on this uh, facade of trying to be a writer because I'm not. Welcome to the Creative Freedom Podcast with Saint Swell, our chance to explore ideas on cultivating greater creative freedom in our own lives and how you can do the same. In this week's podcast, I sit down with Jamie to delve a little deeper into his background and creative journey. We talk growing up in Northern Ireland, mental health and creativity, and I think he only manages one bad dad joke, so you're welcome. Please like, share, subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Jamie, welcome. Feel under pressure. <laughs> you should feel under. You shouldn't feel under pressure. These are like, yeah, these are fine questions. I just really want to. Um, I want you just to have the opportunity to dive into a bit of who you are and to give other people a bit of insight into who that person is. Good luck. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Okay. So let's just start at the beginning. Tell me a bit about where you grew up and what that context was like. And he's frowning, he's frowning really hard. Uh, Actually, it's because it's so long ago. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I was born and grew up in Northern Ireland, uh, a small uh, town called Banbridge, um, which more than likely you will never have heard of. It's Mm. a beautiful place, I love it. Um, So I grew up there in the 1980s, which if you know your political history, you know that Northern Ireland had a pretty turbulent kind of past. Um, An interesting side note straight off the bat, um, I don't know if we're going to get to this, because one of our rules for the podcast was that we would see each other's questions, uh, and I haven't seen the whole (laughs) thing, so I've no idea what's coming up. But if you think about all all of the sectarian fighting that was going on during the, the 80s and 90s, which has thankfully subsided, um, quite a bit is that there was no music and no bands mm. that would come to Northern Ireland to perform. It was just literally non-existent, except for one, except for one artist who refused to turn himself away from all of the fighting that was going, and that was Brian Adams. You speak to anyone over a certain age, and everyone will remember the Brian Adams gigs at the King's Hall in Belfast. Um, which is hilarious because now you have so many venues and there's literally not an artist in the world who hasn't, uh, you, know, you know, came to perform in Belfast. But mm. that's just the way the country was. Um, so everything that I understood about art and music and life at that stage all falls under, you know, this kind of shadow of, of you know, of the fighting that, as I said, has thankfully stopped. Uh, yeah, I, I left in 2002... Um, after Which you, you'd be what age then? Uh, I would have been just turned twenty. Mm. So I I, I uh, packed up. I had failed university a couple of times, and I packed up and decided I was going to move to uh, Glasgow, a city that I had been to once before in my life, and after that first visit, had decided uh, the only thing I know about Glasgow is I will never ever live here. <laughs> and, uh, that's just seriously what happened. <laughs> And is I've, that working out for you? Uh, so far, it's twenty years and counting. <laughs> it's <laughs> not twenty years. You're not al- forty. No, almost. So that was two thousand and two. Yeah. 
you know, so we're coming up on, this will be 18 years. Wow. Yeah, I'm glad I listened to my... Uh, Your inner voice. My inner voice back then. <laughs> yeah. And going back to NI, how do you kind of feel that shaped you as a human and also as an artist, especially growing up in those times? Um, I don't think there was anything from the fighting that would have shaped in terms of how I, how I approached art, except from what I was saying, that we didn't have access um, face to face to uh, really understand, you know, and have this wide access to uh, artists who came from outside the country. Certainly, that was my experience. Um, it was about 1999, 98, 99, I'm not sure exactly. Uh, and the first gig I ever went to when things started opening up a lot more um, was Green Day touring the Nimrod record. Mm. So, one of my first musical memory is uh, Billy Joe playing uh, Time of Your Life mm -hmm. on the electric guitar in front of like a thousand totally awestruck Green Day fans. And it was like, oh my God, this is what live music is like. What you also have to realise is whenever a country is, is particularly insular, that we look inwards towards the art. So you end up, every local town would have had a pretty sustainable um, rock scene the interesting thing about that was NI is a hotbed for classic rock. So stuff that is influenced by Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, uh, you know, ACDC. Even now, I would say probably four out of every five bands that you would go and see if you went to any local town will have its roots in that kind of 70s classic rock. Mm. I have no idea where that, uh, you know, where that would have came from. Of course, you've got Irish bands like The Undertones and Thin Lizzy you know kind of influencing people but yeah it's such a strange thing but we were there was there was never any shortage of of live local music uh, in you know in all kind of shapes and forms mm. one of the things that's always intrigued me about you since really the very beginning is how you are so kind of completely self-taught and really dive into everything on your own terms and um, I just really wanted to know where that was kind of born from. It's a good question. I think I'm naturally curious to absorbing new information and and trying new and, and and education and learning, but that 100% did not come from the school system. Um, the school I went to was quite. It definitely wasn't posh, but it was able to turn out consistently high grades and results for the kids. You know, we were the children of local farmers and farming communities mm. this wasn't you know this wasn't the Eaton and, and things of the world and yet so many of of my friends and people I went to school with went on to Oxford and Cambridge and St Andrews and Glasgow and Edinburgh Uni and all these different places um I just and it, it, it's only historically looking back I just clashed from the beginning I just could not get settled into this idea that somebody will structure a class and say you must learn this and you must not question what I'm telling you and to me I say I love learning but I hated the education system oh god me too you know what I mean it's just like it's not it's not learning it's not built regurgitation and it's not built for what I was yeah um knew, knew for what I was uh, uh, you know I was built for and, and I see so many friends who fell through gaps as well it took a really long time to 
try and understand where you fit into the you know, into the, into that sort of machine? The answer is you don't. You got to build your own machine, and that's mm. to come back to your point is where that natural curiosity came for um, trying to pick up new skills. You know, mm. uh, I my brother and I uh, started playing guitar around the same time. I would have been about eleven. He would have been about twelve. I would have been about thirteen, fourteen, maybe. And we were we were starting to pick things up from websites like the online guitar archive, which kind of became superseded, you know, now by Ultimate Guitar mm. at a time when this was like really rudimentary uh, web design. But you're just listening to bands like Oasis and Smashing Pumpkins and Nirvana, oh, Foo Fighters, and trying to emulate that based off the tab of the internet, and that's where that comes from and there have been a lot of times when I have thought my goodness I really need to learn more music theory in mm. order to be a air quotes true musician and over the last year I've added little things keys and chords and you know and and, and different things that have helped me uh, grow the vocabulary but that fundamental music theory stuff is still lacking I can't read music yeah. I can't listen to a song and just go okay I know how I'm going to play that uh, that part is painfully slow but the other part is instinctive the ear yeah. the ability to have the sense of I can pick up the guitar start writing a song and I can hear the drums I can hear the bass I can hear the cello I can hear the keys the organs it all comes to me just in in a kind of strange vision yeah I kind of feel like uh, that's where I am happiest and I don't want to rock that kind of instinctive, soulful approach to songwriting. Mm -hmm. um, so I try not to s to go too close to music theory. I hope I'm not sure if that answers the question. They're, they're just freestyling. That's, that's you know, I, I find it interesting about the music theory thing because <laughs> I should have told you a few months ago, I was um, watching a musician's IG stories and she was teaching people how to play one of her songs and what was fascinating to me was that she wasn't teaching the chords she was literally it was like watching Phoebe from Friends she was like and then the shape's like this and then the shape's like that and it, it was so funny it was like old lady and and there was no chord name and I just thought that is so beautiful and you know, I really love that because it just kind of reinstills that thing of there's no one way, which we obviously know we talk about all the time anyway. But, you know, this idea that you have to be a certain way to be a musician is um, it's just not true, you know. But I think that it, that extends into all areas of life. Sure. I mean, that musician you, you know, you're talking about, she's been touring and, and playing professionally and succeeding for at least 10, 15 years. Yeah. I remember when I worked in the, the venues around Glasgow, you know, uh, years and years ago she was starting to come onto the scene yeah. and to see her still flourishing and pushing exactly. the creative uh, envelope she has found out who she is yeah. we presume and uh, and she's doing her own thing but I find that that natural um, that natural fear of being found out that almost imposter mm. syndrome of musician that extends into my ability to take myself seriously as a vocalist uh, as a designer I've worked in design for over 10 years and I've never learned a single thing formally. Everything has been learned uh, either from the internet or by being surrounded by incredible people. Maybe that is the only w that is education in its truest form. Yeah. I think about screenwriting. When I, when I took that up a few years ago, that was from reading Save the Cat and uh, uh, into, the uh, uh, into the Woods. Yeah. Um, Not to be confused with the musical. 
which is <laughs> not yeah, that. Which is also on Alexa in our house quite a lot recently. Yes. Uh, as the girls start exploring uh, the uh, age five and seven, exploring <laughs> the musicals of Stephen Sondheim, <laughs> um, which sounds much more pretentious. It really than, does. As soon as you said that, I was like, um, really? what? Yeah, it's no, kind of it's kind of a mixture between Stephen Sondheim and Little Mix, to be fair. So it's kind of evenly balanced. Jeez. But that imposter syndrome never leaves. I wondered when, you know, for instance, for design, I wondered if I had a successful design career. I worked with client X, Y, and Z. I got the job title, the salary, the career. Then I would either be seen as a serious designer or take myself seriously as a designer. The answer is neither of those are true. You know, how I perceived myself was how others I think have saw me through the years and I think rather than pretending that that is something that will go away in time reading the works of Maya uh, Angelo who who talks about uh, imposter syndrome a lot I don't think it ever goes away the question is how you're learning to to deal with exactly. it on a daily basis maybe like anxiety or something sure. it, w- there is no cure but there is a lifestyle management aspect to it and I have to get to the p- the point quite regularly where I am saying, right, I'm at the crossroads. I can take a left here, go back to bed and hide from the artistic journey that I want to go on because I'm afraid of somebody finding out that I'm actually not a good singer and not a good guitarist. I don't have good songs, all of these different things. Mm. Or I take a right and I just start walking. And what comes out, I understand, is a fundamental um, characteristic of who I am and that becomes much more exciting than worrying about A, what others think of me or B, what the end outcome uh, becomes because then you realise that you become a journey artist not a destination artist and I think that was a massive shift Yeah Um, Tell me about the moment where you if if you kind of had this moment where you remember switching from being a listener of music to being a creator of music and, and what kind of inspired that a girl the age old of course why of course it was a girl the age old (laughs) songwriting reason for a hormonal teen to pick (laughs) up the guitar and start writing look at what I can do there's either two reasons for it one is you're angry and you want to play thrash and punk and uh, batter around on an old drum kit in in your parents or your friend's parents garage or number two you're trying to impress a girl or boy obviously Uh, for me it was a girl that was uh, in the musical theatre group at school. Yeah. And uh, I sat down one day and uh, I had, oh no, I embarrassed myself here. <laughs> but I'll go with it. We're all friends here. I had been watching um, City of Angels, the Nicolas Cage yep. movie. I loved it. I thought it was great. Yep. Such a great concept. And really, in hindsight now, was introducing spiritual concepts and a, a spiritual aspect to who I was that you definitely weren't getting growing up yeah. where I was growing up. What age were you then? What age were you? Oh, goodness. Uh, f- six, 15, 16, maybe. Right. So I got to a place where the guitar was starting to make sense to me. I was starting to feel like it was an extension of who I was in terms of playing, but I hadn't done any real writing. And this song came out. Uh, and and I can still I can still play it in my head. I could probably play it on the guitar. I wouldn't, I'm not sure if I'd remember the words, thankfully. And 
one night we were at the rap party to a musical theatre production at a friend's house and I said, uh, I went up to the girl and I said, have you got a minute? And she said, yeah. And uh, I said, um, I said, I've, uh, I, I had, br- bear in mind, I'd barely spoken to her. I'm not entirely yeah, sure I'm she really surprised. knew who I was. <laughs> but, but rather than trying to bridge that gap, I decided to write a song and hijack her in the corridor and say, hey, uh, have you got a minute? I've written that you a song. That makes more sense. It's not at all <laughs> creepy. Yeah, oh, definitely. No, trust me, it definitely wasn't creepy for me. Um, so she sat there, totally the perfect audience. Yeah. Pin drop, looked deadly serious. I, I, I hit the first chord and I thought, my God, I can't turn back. I wish I could. And I played the entire I'm song. I'm like really cringing listening to this. You were now bless you. I played the song. And bear in mind, I did not sing. I did not sing anywhere. Yeah. And I just like, this has got to come out. If this is how I'm going to get the, if this is how I'm going to get the girl, this is what, this is what I'm going to have to go through. And uh, I hit the last, strummed the last chord, kind of kept looking down <laughs> at the ground. And then when I looked up, she she really smiled, a genuine, heartfelt, cringy smile. <laughs> and, cringy smile. And she got up and walked straight out. And uh, no, to- totally, you know, I had, but that's the end. That, that's the, what the, was the song? I don't remember. Is it Google song? No, it's my song. What I wrote you? it. Oh, I thought you said it was like the City of Angels thing and that's what you no, said. No, no, I was inspired ah, by a City of Angels. right. You so know those eyes were like that. Oh, can I remember? You're uh, going to ask me to sing. I'm not going to ask no, you to sing. No, I'm not going to sing. The song was called... Uh, oh, my God. Something like Talk to an Angel. Yeah, K- okay, Kissed okay. by an Angel. Something okay, like that. Okay. Totally just like taken straight from, from that Nicolas Cage movie. Yeah. But she got up and she walked straight out. Oh, God. We never mentioned it again. Nothing happened. Both went her separate ways. Yeah. I presume she still feels she went home. She probably had a shower and had to wash <laughs> off the experience of of my of my unrequited love. But Aww. it it was really interesting because it allowed me to understand that I was in control of taking emotions and feeling, turning them into a vehicle and releasing them to the world. Yeah, the end product didn't turn out the way you want, but that's. Well, that's that's teenage life, but it's also life in general. Yeah, you know, you surrender the outcome, and actually, the gift that she gave me was a hundred times greater because it, it that was the f- that was the start of my songwriting journey. Yep. But you know, I I obviously know what your I have a bit of background into what your your home life was like when you were singing, and also what your school life was like when you were singing, and they, you know, it wasn't an environment from what I can recall that was kind of um that your singing was celebrated or that you were well you're not like chucked out of the choir or something that's like a really known thing for lots of people who no, are artists no. singers let's 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 take a moment to to, to clarify the facts <laughs> well, clarify i me. was not thrown out of the school choir in primary school there was a choir there was i think 25 in my class at school yeah and 24 made the addition and i didn't make the addition so out of my class, there was a choir of twenty-four people, and I was the only one who didn't get in. That's You're my that's then. my that's my memory. I may have entirely that's cruel. I, I may have entirely made it up. Oh, why would you do that? Well, time passes, but that's yeah, that's that's, a, that's, a, that's what in yoga circles we call a samskara. That's an imprint on you know on who you are on your psyche. I didn't get into sing, whatever the 
kumbaya or whatever it happened to be at that time. But what I mean is, for for me, what's really kind of lovely and reassuring is the fact that you didn't grow up in an environment where your voice was super celebrated in that way. So to me, what's beautiful about that is that you got really used to that feeling of um, failure or... Um, you know, like your like your your girl, <laughs> your city of angels girl. You know, like walking out, and that wasn't enough to deter you from, you know, singing again, or or you know, your dad kind of, you know, shouting shop, you know, or whatever when you're like singing really loudly in your room. Isn't uh, what's beautiful is that that wasn't enough to stop you from continuing on your journey, and and I think that's really important. I don't think it could. I don't know if there's any one thing or any collective number of things that would have said you've got to stop and then I listened to it mm. um that was just I think it's in my bones I I I was born needing to sing and write and perform and it takes a long time to f- to uncover that and find it but what I found when I moved to Glasgow was this vibrant open mic scene and to be honest the karaoke scene was a place where I really started kind of paying my dues mm. being able to stand up and pick a selection of songs that you had worked on and deliver them to a very drunk, raucous Glaswegian crowd. And they're so celebratory. What's the word? Celebratory? Celebratory. I can't see it. Welcoming. But they're so so kind of just so lovely and the applause is so kind of free-flowing in Glasgow and, you know, it's that whole people make Glasgow thing is. But if if you've never been to Glasgow uh, or never certainly attended a gig, there's a well-known phrase that says if you come to Glasgow and play if a crowd really likes you they will let you know if a crowd really doesn't like you they won't let you know let's <laughs> contrast this let's contrast this if you move 50 miles to the east oh and play God. a gig in Edinburgh yeah. if the crowd like you they're not going to tell you yep. if the crowd hate you they're still not going to tell you Yep. and that's the reason why I feel anyway that, that Edinburgh is the home of theatre Glasgow is the home of live music and you know, and drunk entertainment. But that's that's <laughs> how my story unfolded when I when I moved to Glasgow. I picked up a small subset of songs, The Calling, Wherever You Will Go, oh One by You Two. Yeah. Uh, oh, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, you Remind Me, Nickelback. Oh, my God. So these are the songs, like these hard, yeah. hard pop rock, whatever you want to call them. These were the radio rock. These were the songs that I was singing at karaoke yeah. while at the same time every night um, writing and and trying to perform my own music at you know at local yeah. open mic nights. Your music and songwriting has really um, evolved naturally over the years. What would you say inspires and guides your writing these days? Uh, that's easy. The truth. You know that 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 sort of line. All you know. All I'm looking for now is the truth. I think. I think that's a line from my book. Actually, that's weird that you quote yourself. A line from <laughs> I jumped down the rabbit hole, and all I'm looking for is the truth. That's weird. I thought it was going to be some great philosopher. No, it was me. Um, but that is that is the answer. And songwriting had fallen by the wayside, you know, for a lot of years. Kind of from 2009 onwards, there was still an acoustic in the house at all times, and occasionally you pick up and have a strum. And there were a couple of nice songs that came along the way. But it was really the song Masca that changed everything. 
uh, for me as a songwriter. Tell me about that process of writing Masco or, or, or rather it being written through you because that was a really special... I mean, I remember it so well that night. And There are songs that are painful and slow and laborious and you have to turn up like a nine-to-five job. You have to fight over every syllable. You have to fight over every chord, every piece of the melody, every element of production. And then there's the complete opposite, which is the category that Masca fell into. Um, I had just come back from three weeks up a mountain in Tenerife, which is a volcanic island off the coast of Africa, uh, part of the Canary Islands. I was on a yoga teaching retreat, and my mind was just completely blown by the incredible teaching that I got. Your heart is wide open by the end of it, and you don't really know how you're going to function in the real world when you come back, certainly not the way I had um, tried to function previously. The night after I got back, uh, it's obviously retelling it for people, less for yourself. Yeah. Holly was upstairs putting the girls down to bed. I'm sitting in the living room, not really knowing what to do with myself. My fingers start getting twitchy, and I think, oh God, I'm, I haven't played guitar for a couple of days. I pick up the acoustic guitar, hit four chords. I've hit these chords 10,000 times before. Nothing feels special any other day I hit these four chords and I'm like there's something here I grab my phone I grab a pen and pad and within five minutes I have the rough version of this song complete I know exactly what I'm doing with it and I know where I'm going within 15 minutes I have a recorded version within 30 minutes the entire song is complete and I'm sitting like a like a shivering wreck (laughs) Holly comes downstairs from putting the girls down, she's taken ages, which is really uncharacteristic. I said, what, uh, what took you so long? She's like, oh, nodded off, lying next to them. and uh, Which was so odd, because like at that time, maybe when they were younger, but at that time, that was really not, that was really not what happened. You know, that was really so... It was totally out of character. Yeah, yeah. And uh, she comes downstairs, and I'm sitting... She's, are you okay? You look like you've seen a ghost. And I'm like, I've just written the song, but I didn't write it. Mm. And she's like, I've, w- what do you mean? Yeah. And uh, I said, all I can do or explain is, is by playing the song. Yeah. So I picked up the guitar and I played the song from start to finish through in a, in, in a oneer. And you, know, you can keep me right on this. I think we just sat there and cried. Yeah. And I've never felt that in the songwriting process. I've never felt yeah. that about a song to know that something so unbelievably special had been gifted to you. I don't think, I actually, I know for a fact that song was never coming had I not been on the three weeks uh, in, in Tenerife. Well, you were just in a different place. Like you were just energetically in a different, you know, in a different zone. You really were. You know? And. That was it, you know, we have been listening to uh, Trevor Hall, the incredible American spiritual folk singer, I don't know how, acoustic singer-songwriter, and I had been listening to him for for quite a while, and you hadn't really cottoned on to it yet, and then one day it it came on, or it came on, and you're like, oh my, who is this? 
and, and our lives were changed in that moment. And Masca fell into a similar category. Uh, and I couldn't, you know, I can't say that my songwriting could ever go back to how it was before. There's the mm. kind of pre-Masca and there's the post-Masca. And that's not to say that every song I write now has some sort of quasi-spiritual angle to it. I'm not trying to force to be the next MC Yogi no, or Trevor Hall or East Forest. Yeah. You trust what comes out. And that, again, coming back to your, the very long, long-winded long answer to your question is what are, you, when you, what, are you, what are you chasing after in your songwriting? And the answer then is the truth. The truth of who you are in that moment or the story that needs to come out that you don't even know exists, yeah. which was the case with Masca. Well, that kind of just leads me perfectly onto my next question. Oh. It's almost as if you knew. So you mentioned in your memoir, The Middle, which we'll get to another day, um, about how difficult you find journaling because it is often, it feels kind of silly and a bit narrow. And um, yet when you write songs, um, you reckon, or sorry, when you were writing this book, you recognised how deeply journalistic your songs are. Um Tell me about that. It's a tricky one because, you know, like you're saying, I am notoriously terrible at forming thoughts and feelings on paper in terms of uh, in terms of a diary or journal. That's a trust issue. That's a trust issue that yeah. I'm going to uncover something uh, incredibly uh, deep and personal, and then suddenly it's in a little book that can go missing. Or it's it's stored on Evernote or, or you know, some kind of note app. But then likewise, as soon as I start writing songs, or actually a screenwriting turned out to be another cathartic form of expression, was you begin and maybe you don't even consciously realise, but you begin to put uh your thoughts and experiences into the mouths of characters, mm-hmm. particularly with screenwriting, less so maybe with uh with songwriting. I'm not a good songwriter for telling the folk songs of the world the uh, Tommy and Gina Bon Jovi style of writing, yeah. the Bruce Springsteen style of writing, you know, talking about Bobby who works down you know, at the local steel plant, whatever Bruce Springsteen and, and John Bon Jovi incredible songwriters who do a great job of that, I've been I've never put a, I don't think I've ever put a song location of a place in any song except Masca and it's not even really, re- it's not referenced. You, know, yeah, you know what I mean? There's the no, mm-hmm. I find that a strange thing to do. But likewise, in terms of songwriting in general, I find it really easy to lower that trust guard or whatever it might be and put whole aspects of, of yourself and your personality and your thoughts uh, onto paper and eventually then, you know, on, into song um, from a personal point of view. But what what is interesting to me is someone who obviously uh, <laughs> has spent a lot of time with you over the years and uh, is very for better and worse, <laughs> better and, worse and is very aware of um, you know your access to your own emotions as a human as a human first. What is fascinating about your songwriting is that you have it feels like you have greater access to expression in your songs than what sometimes you do in the day-to-day of life, where that can be more complicated. If you're asking if I have an explanation or an understanding of that, I don't. <laughs> I find the whole process completely baffling. <laughs> and like I mentioned in, in the in the book, 
am I supposed to walk through life with a, a ukulele, being able to sing my way through difficult emotional circumstances? No, and please don't. That would be strange. That was, a, that was a rhetorical question. I wasn't <laughs> actually looking for an answer to that because I was thinking of doing it. <laughs> right. But I don't, I don't understand where the suppression or repression of emotional um, aspects of my day-to-day life. I don't know when that started. I don't particularly know, other than through kind of meditation and yoga. I'm not entirely sure how to bypass those blockers yet sitting at the piano or sitting at a piece of paper in terms of screenwriting uh, or songwriting. Um, it, it actually reminds me a little bit of uh, that moment in oh, what's the movie? King's Speech, Colin mm-hmm. Firth, mm-hmm. where when he hears himself, he falls into a stuttering pattern and can't get through the speech. And then the guy puts the headphones on him and plays music so he can't hear himself. Mm. And he's told just to speak. And when he does that, he doesn't stutter. His mind doesn't create the the barrier that's creating this kind of self-fulfilling loop. And I feel that songwriting and screenwriting to an extent do that, allow me to bypass whatever that blocker is in day-to-day life and get all of that out onto, get that all out onto paper. Yeah. You said that you never set out to write this book, The Muddle. Tell me then how it came to be and what fueled its creation. I think the more I started reading, so a little bit of context, this summer, goodness, last summer, is that all? One year? About one year ago, uh, I had finished up a design project and I had a lot of free time. And I uh, would normally then throw myself into a tech project, trying to build an app for somebody or, you know, some sort of project for, for an idea I had. And I came up for the first time with the idea of taking that time and creating a project about myself. No technology involved. This was going to be personal development. What what Holly uh, refers to as doing the work. I was going <laughs> to... I but was, you were like, what does that mean? What I couldn't understand. It, yeah. it doesn't it, do the work. You just get on your mat and do the work. I was like, I get on the mat and I do downward dog. Is that the work? <laughs> is that the work? You know, is if Shavasana only, l- only lying work. on your back and staring into the abyss? Is that the work? Yeah. Um, and I started, I, st- I just had this, this, this idea that no, actually I was going to work on myself and just see what happens because what happened with the tech projects were I would bury thousands of hours into them. I would burn out. I would crash. I would have a mental health episode and uh, the project would never launch. So as valuable as all of that experience, writing, coding, um, designing, was from a career point of view, it was completely unhelpful from a life uh, development point of view. So the further I got into this self-inquiry project last summer, I realized I was having all of these interesting thoughts pop up when I was reading books by other great writers. Yeah, we ordered like what 20, 20 books. Well, I'm not sure, but in total, like we like we have a lot of books in the house from similar authors, and we went and created the ultimate Amazon wish list. Mm-hmm. You know, these kind of pop culture writers. Nothing was too too deep or too heavy. I don't think my brain could have handled anything. Mm-hmm. You know, like I've read a large part of autobiography of a yogi. Mm. Like I I 
that was a hard that's a hard yeah, hard song it's beautifully mm. written but it's a hard slog mm-hmm. you know Bhagavad Gita and mm-hmm. the Upanishads and all of these other books I can dive into them for small periods of time yeah they're not easy reads but you sit down and read Love Warrior by Glennon Doyle oh. Reasons to Stay Alive Matt Haig um, Russell Brown. Brand Brene Brown you read all of these uh, kind of popular writers and you understand why they're popular because they're beautifully written and they're you know totally accessible, which yeah. I would never in a million years use as a as a byword for inadequate, as if accessibility is a negative. Uh, in, and and I you know I followed a, a lecturer, um, social justice lecturer on Twitter recently, and she has been destroyed in her academic circle because uh, a lot of people have said that her work is too accessible. The average common man and woman, whoever that may be, can read her academic papers. Wow, that is fascinating. And understand what they mean. Wow. And there's there's a there's a you know there's a historical bent to all of that. There's there's patriarchy. There's privilege. You know, there's a whole bunch of different things. She's writing about difficult um, transgender social justice issues. So, you know, I think that's rubbing a lot of people up the wrong way to begin with. Yeah. But this idea that somebody could read her her textbooks or her academic papers and, and understand them, it. Lord forbid. And that'd be a problem. And there's more than six people in <laughs> the world who have read them yeah. and they're not gathering dust. Mm. I think it speaks volumes for the people who are speaking out against it. Mm-hmm. But the more I was reading all of these books by, by Glenn Doyle, Liz Gilbert, all these people, I had these ideas. So I grabbed the laptop. And I say, I'm going to try and capture a few of them. And I'll write until the idea dissipates. Mm-hmm. And I'll go back to the book. And, you know, sometimes it might be a highlighter in the in the, in the book or the Kindle um, for something that, that triggers an interesting thing. But I started writing. And then writing a little bit more and a little bit more. And soon it was a couple of thousand words. Soon it was 5,000, 10,000, 15, yeah. 20,000 words. Almost co- all complete waffle. Mm. You know, but that's okay. That I wasn't trying for beautiful prose. This was just getting the idea out before it was gone. Mm-hmm. And there came a point long before I mentioned to you or anyone else that I was thinking of turning this into a book. And I thought one day, there's something here. There's a story here that other people might find helpful from a mental health, anxiety and depression point of view. Something fresh that I hadn't read before. Yeah. You know, the, the, this um, understanding of creativity, how that impacts it. Not from the point of view like Sylvia Plath or something where, no, yeah, that's a, yeah. where you know, all creative people are madmen and women are all madmen or creative people. And it mm. wasn't about trying to understand that link. It was understanding that I had a way, I'd found a path of connection and a path around some of these um, traits and experiences through the use of creativity. Um and I just began writing and writing and writing. Yeah. And it was literally, it was only after I had kind of convinced myself there was something decent in what I was writing that I then openly admitted to you and maybe to some family members, hey, I think there could be a book here. Mm-hmm. And that, that was really the start of it. Yeah. Hmm. How does your... Um you know, obviously you've talked about your mental health and creativity. How does your mental health impact your art? And how does your art impact your mental health? Talk, talk to me about that relationship. Oh, goodness. Have you got time? It's a big one. 
Have we got time? Hmm. I recognize now more in hindsight after, oh goodness, almost 20 years of mental health uh, episodes of various strengths and flavors. I recognize some of the triggers for it. What I realize is when I can manage or avoid those triggers, my creative brain works faster and stronger uh, than any other time. When some of those triggers are introduced, like exhaustion or anxiety or work pressure or money pressure or any life pressure, any of these sorts of things creep in, I could literally be writing a screenplay one day and I'll wake up the next morning and it's totally DOA. There is no electrical signal coming from my brain. Mm. The fog descends, (coughs) the exhaustion descends, and I know I've had it. Uh, That could be days, weeks, or months, and I'm not getting anything back to that. And that's probably one of the most frustrating experiences that that, that I can have, that you're in flow state on Tuesday and by Wednesday the fog has descended and you're not... It's not that you're not getting out of bed, but you're numb... You're numb to the connection to the genie or the spiritual source, wherever you're drawing the inspiration from. But there's no beautiful sense to your language when you sit down and try and type or write or play. And that's painful. Mm. On the flip side to the question of how does the creativity impact mental health? It has given me an outlet that I don't think about too much. I don't sit Mm. down and go, oh my goodness, I'm feeling depressed, I'm going to write a song. I don't think it comes like that. But what I realize (laughs) is sometimes through the art that I create, I look back and go, my God, I I really really settled something that was motoring around my head. And, you know, to take... Which is that journalistic thing again, where you're just kind of taking that and you're you're not doing it in a diary or you're not doing it, but you're kind of, you're journaling and this kind of space. And I didn't get that. I did not get that for years, yeah. um, mostly until we started talking about uh, writing the book. And I started looking back through old Dropbox folders and found songs that predate even uh, you and I together. Um, but then in, in all of those years, looking back and reading the words of your own songs and realizing that you've been keeping a diary for 20 years. Exactly. But they also just happen to have chord structures next to them. <laughs> and, you know, we think of one of the songs, Wolves, which is probably not long after we had uh, we had met. Mm. And I read the words of that now and it'll still send a chill up, up my spine yeah. because you were taking something so um, something so intangible as mental health yeah. and it was just, it was as easy as sitting down and just writing the song of the wolves that were scratching out the window mm. to come and get you and you were asking for help. And it was like, my God, if I had have, uh, listened to the, the lesson in that song so many times in the last 10 years, I would have been in a much better position. But hey, we don't get to we don't get to walk the path a second time. Yeah, you can you can read the wolf, you can read the words to wolves actually on our Instagram. It's in one of our posts that we shared recently. Oh, very nice. Um, yeah, it's an amazing. I can't read the words without hearing the song and then thinking about where we were living at that time and what that was like and you know. Just I'll, such do, an I'll, I'll, I'll maybe do a little acoustic version of it and pop yeah. it on for anybody that wants to hear where the kind of inspiration yeah, for the song came from. Sounds yeah. 
Um, almost everyone that has read the book has said it taught them so much. It's funny, educational, insightful, and beautifully, eloquently written. That has been like the thing that everyone's like, oh my god, it's so amazingly written. Um, <coughs> excuse me. If there was one lesson that you could give people as a takeaway from it, what would it be and why? I don't want to give away the, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the last <laughs> chapter <laughs> yeah. that ties up the entire book into the title. So don't say no more. So let's say no more. You're just going to have to go and buy the book. <laughs> that sounds weird. I don't like saying that, but it's true. But you should say it because it's an amazing book. And actually, you know, it, it really needs to be in the hands of people because it is so relatable and it's so human and it's so funny in parts and wise and really insightful and I think you know anyone that has read it um has you know always been like I'm going to buy that for my friend and their friends and because you know there's a, there's such a message in the book for people who can really relate to it and that's so important that we see ourselves and we can go oh hey me too like this was an interesting point that I would not have written the book had it not been for Matt Haig writing Reasons to Stay Alive and I have no idea where we first got the book did you bring it home we yeah i actually bought it for your birthday one year or for father's day or something so when we were living in the sunshine house and uh does anybody else code code the names of their houses but anyway <laughs> just so we have moved, we a lot, We've moved a lot so we need to have code names to remember yeah, which yeah, are the different houses the house. um <laughs> that my book would not have been possible without matt haig taking his experiences of anxiety mental health sure. and putting them into words Again, a similar idea, easily digested, easily read, so critical, so critical for people who are, are in the middle of an episode, yeah. who can't get out of bed, who struggle to do anything other than put Netflix on and just burn through, you know, burn through days, weeks and months. So to be able to pick up something that other people can relate to in an easy, similar way is game changing for me as a writer. And I actually was writing a, a blog post about it this week. The idea of, again, the imposter syndrome creeping in when I started writing the book mm -hmm. and trying to forcefully write as beautiful prose as Liz Gilbert and Glennon Doyle and failing and then realizing that I can't carry on this uh, facade of trying to be a writer because I'm not. Wow. Because you're such a You've always been a writer. That's what's so funny about the whole thing, whether it's songwriting or, you know, any kind of writing. Your writing has always been like just so beautiful. But but you're talking about the definite. Then you were just talking about his labels and definitions. A yeah. writer is somebody who's well, you know, well versed in the classics. Somebody. But who then that goes back to your thing about musical theory, right? Correct. Yeah. And that's that's uh, again another lesson in hindsight. Yeah. Uh, what what's unsurprising is how much my ethos towards writing, conscious or subconscious, is the same as my ethos towards design, accessibility, simplicity, mm. ease of message, yep. complete your task, enjoy the product, move on with your day. So it, it was no surprise then that I think it would have been a greater surprise to have been such a clean, uncluttered designer to then come to writing and writing like some kind of James Joyce 900-page Ulysses <laughs> that takes a PhD to, to dissect. That's not me. It's, n it's neither my songwriting, it's neither my yeah. personality, and it's neither my approach to design. 
So that was another critical lesson, uh, you know, through the, the process of writing. Yeah. What has parenthood taught you about yourself? That's a big one. That's a big one. <laughs> That's a nearly enough one for another episode. What is parenthood? Yeah. Snippets. Give us snippets. Okay. Parenthood taught me that when we found out that we were going to become parents, the couple of years preceding to that was probably the best mental, physical, spiritual health that we had been in. We were both working as personal trainers. We had spent a lot of time. We had travelled around the world to a certain extent. We were we we had found a little bit of a calling in health and fitness and wellness. So I like to think I had my shit together mm-hmm. and had done a lot of work on myself in many different forms, was relatively stable and assured in who I was as an individual. <laughs> and then parenthood appears and all of that goes out the window. And it's like that. It's like Tommy Lee Jones in Men in Black arrives at your front door one day and he uses that little machine and wipes your brain of everything you thought you knew about yourself in the world. Did you feel you knew a lot about yourself before parenthood? I mean, parenthood has taught me so much about myself. Like, did you feel that you knew all the things about yourself before parenthood? To feel I knew all the things? No. no, but did you feel like you had a real sense of who you were? I mean, obviously, we obviously have a sense of who we are th- pre-parenthood, but I mean, what feels closer to the truth now? Like, I feel I feel that I struggled through my twenties to understand anything of what was going on. Yeah. You know, I travelled, I should have travelled more, I should have taken you know more risks and more challenges. But by the time we reached the end of our 20s, we had become personal trainers, we had moved into the tech industry, things had started to feel like I was maybe succeeding at adulting <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Is anyone succeeding at adulting? Well, that's the... F- do that, tell, do that's, tell. That's the, uh, the rise before the fall, because I, I probably thought I had a little bit. And then parenthood came along and just annihilated everything. And mm-hmm. I, I'm i not sure if I've ever really got back to that false level of um, confidence that I know exactly how, uh, uh, how life works in the interim. If you're willing, the lessons are in parenthood every second of the day. Not in terms of what you can impart as the great truth teller to your children, but what you can do from how, how you can observe and listen and watch them and how that reflects back on yourself. So what have the girls taught you about you? Oh, what do they show you every day? What's the what's the matter there? Different different things from each one. I have to mm. re- you know as as anybody a parent of you know one, more than one child you realize their personality is so so vastly different. But I watch our oldest daughter from the time she was one or two mm-hmm. walk into a crowd of adults teenagers, strangers, children and she walks in and says I am me I want to know what you're doing and I want to be part of this gang. That freaks me the hell out. <laughs> She's amazing. As, as a socially awkward introvert, introvert yep. that freaks me the hell out yeah. and I love it and what I try not to do is to shit on that yep. for her because that's her superpower. Yeah. I really need to take her to networking lunches with me. She's amazing. And she'll just take off. 
And, and I hope she never loses it, you know. And she's got awkward years ahead, teenage and, and whatnot. But Maybe. she's also got a. That's on us, I think, to keep that those embers stoked. Yeah. You know, in terms of that. Likewise, with our second daughter, a very different character, very complex and emotionally complicated little human being, with a really, really st- strong heart mm-hmm. and really a really Such caring kindness, nature. Yeah very introverted probably because she doesn't get a word in in social circles with how her newer sister just runs into the middle but she's more cautious she's much more like me mm. whereas our eldest daughter is, is much more like you in terms of that extroversion <laughs> and and you know historically I- in school I would have been much more extroverted and I don't know if life and mental health and different things had um, kind of eroded that over time to the point where I struggle to function in not just social circles but society in general. <laughs> and if I tell the truth, if no, this, that's all we can do here yeah, in search exactly. of the truth. <laughs> and if an opportunity arose to live in Argentina in the hills in a Volkswagen camper van, you know, with a guitar and a harmonica or something, we've I, tried. I, I, we've been there. We have we? no. We have not mm. been. We have not been to no, Argentina. Not Argentina, but you know, we've been to many countries. We haven't been to Argentina. Yeah. Do you want to go? Not right now. Oof, maybe when the podcast finish. <laughs> um, but I think that understanding the characteristics of the girls and how much we can shape them through our good and bad attitudes is is a big lesson. Um, but yeah, that's a learning process. I think that goes on for life. The other flip side to that is just understanding how probably how much slack you need to give your own parents oh god yep if you haven't had you know and i'm not talking about anybody who you know who maybe comments on on the podcast or in social media who's had a traumatic past because about that is 100 not what i'm talking about i'm talking about people who just probably are extra difficult on their parents for certain things or certain experiences myself included yourself included yeah um and how much more we need to give them a little bit more slack, not a lot, <laughs> <laughs> not too much, not too much, but uh, a little bit more slack. And yeah. just said, you know what? I hope because they're I hope human first. Like, like we literally had, I had that conversation with my mum last week. Like, we're human first, and we're parents second, and that is the, you know, that's the truth. And I think we've kind of forgotten about that. I think you're right. I think we hundred percent have forgotten. Um, and that's a lesson. And maybe we only learn that now so that we may beg for forgiveness on the on the mistakes that we make mm-hmm. with our children. So we instill on a nightly basis, now let's give thanks for our parents and all of the mistakes they make. <laughs> and may we always forgive them for every time that we didn't do the right That's thing. That's not the talk that we have in our, in our house, but okay. You're, you're right, Holly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We read verses from the Japji before bed <laughs> and light incense <laughs> sticks. Uh Oh, or this is in search of the truth. Oh, uh, no, uh, it's, okay. uh, it's a version of the truth. I am aware of time, so I am going to finish with this last question. Let's do it. Um, we often hear famous people and artists talk of how they kind of knew exactly what they wanted to be from a young age and couldn't imagine what they would be doing outside of that field. Did you grow up with that same, I'm going to be this feeling? Uh, midfielder for Tottenham Hotspur. Did you really? That was it. Was that really? I was good. Like what age? 27, 20, 28. <laughs> 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 Just 
when you became a parent, was it? Just it was like, oh God. <laughs> that dream's Maybe gone. Maybe I could go and play football in Did you Argentina. really? No, that's the childhood one. Yeah, but, yeah, but sure, that's what I mean. But obsessed with football. There did was it evolve so and grow or was it always the, it was, you know? No, I had a relatively academic ambition. I wanted to be a marine biologist. Right. Maybe zoo, study zoology, something like that. Again, another phase. I wanted to be in the army. I wanted to be a surgeon. Mm. You're spinning around plucking ideas that other people are floating for you based on some, and this is a dangerous thing as a parent, not planting seeds that don't exist yeah, and actually allowing your children or yourself to really understand themselves and then follow the burning fire, not the gentle embers of you're good at maths, maybe you should be an accountant, you like oh sums, yeah. maybe you should be an engineer, but the, the red hot, this the red hot are. fire of who you are, where, where can you take that exp- that that feeling and sensation and run with it? Yeah. If I had known that in advance, impossible to say. Impossible to say where where I would have been. You know, at one stage, I thought about studying musical theatre. I thought about studying audio engineering, mm. trying to remain marginally academic while still doing the <laughs> things that actually I really just wanted to do. Yep. The smart answer would have been to follow one of those two paths to see where it led. But the system I grew up in would have automatically been saying, where are you getting the job? Well, yeah, like I just I just literally wrote a post about that today, kind of on Instagram about the fact that we, you know, this we are all artists and it's really hard um, because it can either be kind of crushed out of you or it can be more subtle than that or you can just forget really quickly that you are an artist and that you have real loves and passions and things that you really must do to feed your soul and um or you know our schooling system isn't that's not where that's at and our society isn't doesn't really um value artists as much as we would hope that it would which is a part of this as well well Um, well, that is that is a uh, a contradiction in itself because what are the companies, obviously besides Amazon, during the the, quarant- oh, the COVID sure. quarantine, who boomed? Exactly. iTunes boomed, Apple yeah. boomed, Netflix boomed. But they won't understand. But but not everyone has seen that relationship. The people who are in that 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 kind of band of people who don't value the arts don't also see the relationship between what they consume in these times as then valuable and actually necessary and essential do you know what i mean but we've spent we've spent so long decimating the budgets and syllabus syllabi syllabuses of <laughs> gary gary Busey, <laughs> um of uh you know of 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 the arts from schools yeah in favor of stem subjects yeah that's an that's a question for another day because i also believe in you know being well versed in stem subjects and you know technology and stuff as well but to the detriment of art, music, drama, no. physical education, a wider spiritual, not just religious education, but spiritual education, not a chance. Um, and you're absolutely right. This is one of the places where all we want to do is improve our uh, understanding of art and its place in the world. And I do mean art with a small a. I'm not getting into you know, the meat and bones of culture and class 
and how art, you know, we're not talking strictly, mm. we're not talking opera and, and various things and whatever. We're talking about art that can be as much this, you know, starring in a soap opera as it is graffiti in the wall down the back of your but house. But also to, to me is just your life. You know, art is your life and what you're making of it on the day to day. It's not about the grand, you know, it's not about the Grammys and it's not about the, you know, it's not about the massive things. Like, it's actually about the small, simple, sustainable, keeping showing up for things. That's the art, you know. What I would really like to do uh, through the podcast is find somebody. So if you're listening to this at any stage and either yourself or someone you know has won an award like a Grammy, a Brit Award, an Aria, a Juno, I'd be really keen to interview you on the podcast and understand your experience that led up to and the experiences that you had afterwards to find out if it really answered the great callings of your life. I think we know the answer to that already, don't we? No, but we don't. That's what <laughs> I want to know. Maybe you feel totally fulfilled and, and you're... But that's down to your personal definition of success. I would be really keen to find out because I know I've read a lot of stuff for um, Olympians or um, Tyson Fury speaks about that a lot. The saddest day of his life was the day after he won the heavyweight title of the world in Mm. boxing because he realised it didn't mean anything. What do you do when his entire life from as a young boy training six, seven days a week, the culmination of this become the heavyweight champion and then you get it and you realise that you're the same person you've always been and it's not changing you. And That's did you want it to change you? Was it was you know was that the driving force? And that is a really interesting question that I want to save for another, for another day. time. Well, Jamie, it has been interesting. Thank you very much for your time, and we also got through this whole podcast without a single child coming through that door, which is which pretty is amazing. Marvelous, absolutely marvelous. Yeah, great. Quite we will do this again for sure because there was lots we didn't get to today, but it was really nice to just sit down and kind of freestyle on some of. Um, some of your stuff and your background and your mind. I I appreciated your dulcet tones and your <laughs> insightful questions. Um, the lucky thing is that in uh, the next episode, <laughs> we will be reversing the roles and we get to find out a little bit more about what makes Holy Tech. What makes Holy Tech. Until then. Have a great time. We'll catch up <laughs> with you soon. Take care. Bye.